Right, friends, we are launching back into our Moses series, talking about love. What better day to talk about love? Hmm. Yeah, the nature of love and true love and how that all works. Um, as we've launched into love, we've, we've been talking about many different things, and we're going, to, um, we're going to talk today about some imposters, some imposters to love. So... Has anyone here heard of a, a ministry called Young Life? It's a, it's a ministry that, that reaches out to, uh, to some uh, youth in various communities who don't have a church home. Uh, that's, that's how um, I, my, my faith started, um, kind of getting a kickstart. And I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and, um, and young, I went, started going to Young Life. And Young Life is amazing. They have these uh, camps that, that, that you go to, and it's unlike any camp that you've ever seen. It's like a five-star resort camps, like the best food you've ever eaten, high ropes courses, this thing called the blob where you, where you jump off a high platform and you, you land in what looks like a giant balloon, and someone's on the other end, and you launch them into a lake. Have you seen those? Those are amazing. Anyway, Young Life. So every, that, that's, every year you go to a Young Life camp, but then uh, throughout the year you have this thing called club, and you meet uh, every week and you play games and have fun and, and look, make yourselves look like a fool. And the leaders always do something silly like, uh, like they'll have contests of who can eat as many live crickets as possible. Um, you know, they'll handle snakes. Just fun stuff to make kids like grossed out. And it's, it's so fun. Well, one time they, they had this, uh, we had this thing where we were playing this game where who can chug a gallon of milk? You know, it's like physiologically impossible to have a gallon of milk and, and you, you, you always throw up. I've never met a person that can do this. So if you can do that, I want to meet you. Uh, so, so what they did uh, was, was one club, they ordered pizza. And, the, and when the pizza man came, they said, hey, pizza man, we're having this game. You want to play? And so the pizza man was like, sure. And so the pizza man gets up and is like, you have to chug this gallon of milk. Um, and so the pizza man, like, did it, went for it, went for it. And just about when there was a leader of projectile milk everywhere. Well, this, this wasn't a real, a real pizza man. This was some, like, a staged person, right? So, like, some, like, the leaders, one of their friends, dressed up as a pizza man. They called for pizza. The real pizza man brought the pizza, handed it off to this imposter, and came. Because you can't really do that to a pizza man, right? That would be really cruel. So, uh, anyway, so this, I was, we, we were, but we were all, like, uh, convinced that this was a pizza man who was, who was throwing up. And, and at the end of this whole thing, they said, well, by the way, just so that we're not lying to you, this isn't really the pizza man. This is like my third cousin. I don't know who it was. Um, and we all felt so betrayed. Like, oh, man, we thought this was cool. We thought this was going to happen. Well, I, I, graduated, well, I graduated from high school, and then I went to college. And about my junior year of, of um, college, a buddy of mine who was running a Young Life said, hey, Keith, you want to do the pizza man skit? I was like, oh, let's do it. And so I got on the pizza man outfit and met him at the door. Pizza handoff. Hey, hey pizza man, you want to you wanna eat as many crickets as possible? Sure. You know, and so they're eating live crickets and all the kids are yelling, like, the pizza man's eating the crickets. But really, I was an imposter the whole time, you know. So, you know, you think of, you think of imposters, think people that pose for other things. Oftentimes, I think of love. And the important thing about love is when we study love, we have to understand what the imposters are. What, what are the things that we, we think are love or we're, we're not sure are love, but then are just sort of dressed up like love and eating crickets. I don't know how that parallel goes, but... Um, 
So basically, my, my whole thought in this series is I'm, I'm very interested in helping grassrooters, helping us grow in love, helping us to grow stronger in love, helping our love to grow more pure, more selfless. And we often don't realize in our lives as we are going, because part of, part of our growing up is we all, we've received and, and we've, uh, we've kind of been the recipients of imperfect love, and so th- there's less than perfect love that, that is all around us, and sometimes we're not sure, you know, if what we're giving or what we're experiencing or what, what we're offering is truly selfless love, and so uh, kind of um, beginning to articulate this for the community, begin to describe the difference between what selfless love looks like and what this selfish, interested love looks like so that we can grow up a bit in love from wherever we're coming from. And when we, when we think about these things, and, and love is not an easy topic to talk about because these are the, the ideas of love and what are love are so fuzzy. They're so, uh, you know, the same, the same word that we use for I love, I don't know, I love pizza. It's the same word that we use for I love you, Eve. You know, if I say I love pizza and then I say I love you, Eve, I better mean something different, right? <laughs> so the, the, the point here is that, that love is fuzzy. Love is not easy to get a hold of this true, authentic version, this selfless, godly love. And so the best metaphor that we think about as we learn about love and what true love is is actually slavery. Slavery helps us to realize this metaphor, that there, there's things out there that might pose as love, but it's really just slavery. It's really just things that cause slavery in the world. And so we have to explore uh, this, this metaphor. And, and it just so happens that as we've been going through this series with Moses, and the dominating metaphor through this whole series, if you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, and if you read it through the lens of, of Moses' whole journey as we've been, we realize that slavery becomes the dominating metaphor. And if you read through these books, it's always about slavery being undone and not going back into slavery and being freed from slavery. And so we're now in Deuteronomy, uh, where Moses, this is a picture here on the plains of Moab. This is where Moses is going to give his final sermon before he dies. He's, he's really old. He's like 120 years old. He's going to be giving his final sermon to the people of Israel. He's been wandering with them, leading them through the desert for 40 years. And he's going to say, ultimately, everything I've learned coming out of slavery into freedom, it's all about love. And he gives the great commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole mind and all your strength. He says it's all about love. And so over the course of this series, we're going to talk more about what this selfless love looks like. I'm going to, I think we have four more weeks or so, four or five more weeks, I still haven't decided, in, in this love series. But I'm going to continue to unpack this selfless love, how it, it is true freedom, how, it, how slavery works in the midst of it, and how God goes about forming us into people who are powerfully able to love selflessly. And we talked last week, we began this whole thing by talking about our projects. And if you want to know if you have selfless love, you'll ask this question, what are my projects? What are the things that I want done or accomplished in the world? And then you ask this question, who am I using to help accomplish these? And then the third question, if they weren't able to give me what I want from them, would I still treat them similarly? And if the answer is no, then 
there's sort of an impure, selfish type of love going on if, if we end up using people. So we began talking about that. Uh, but today, before we go any further into describing more selfless love and how it works, we have to talk about the imposters. We have to talk about the things that, we're, that are less than selfish or less than selfless love that are kind of selfish because sometimes we have to compare things in order to understand what the true thing is. So that's what we're doing today. We're, caught, we're talking about uh, slaveries that pose as love. And um, if we're caught up in these behaviors, we're definitely not helping God free the world. So this, these, this is the plain of Moab, plains of Moab. You can see it on a, the mountain here, or the, um, the map here. See how hilly it is? Those were the, the big hills you saw across the Dead Sea. Israel's marching up from the, the wilderness here. They've come up to Moab. We've talked about the experiences of the king of Moab in previous sermons. And if, if, you, if you want to catch up with this series, they're all on podcasts or online. And Israel is just about to go over into the Holy Land here. And so Moses is giving his final sermon, and here's how he starts the second part of it. The, the whole, chapters 1 through 4 are the first part of the sermon, or the first sermon that he gives. And he's reflecting in the first sermon on everything they've come through, because now that he's talking about love, it's not just an abstract love of any old God. It's the God who's led them all the way. And he says to them in the second part of the, uh, his, his last speech, he says Moses, says, Moses convened all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The first thing we need to say here as we, as we talk about this is some, there are versions of Christianity out there that look at the Jewish law and all that Moses gave in the Jewish law, and they hear things like observe them diligently and learn them as some sort of bad form of religion, like it's a legalism. Talk about the word legalism. And you can get into legalism a little bit. You, you, you do things in order to earn your worth. That's kind of the sense of what legalism is. But what Israel and the Jew, Jews were about was not legalism. Legalism is just sort of a cheap way to sort of say that that's a bad sort of religion. And actually, this is Jesus' religion. This is Jesus' uh, faith that, um, out, of which, out of which he came. So uh, when we talk about learning things and learning them diligently, we're talking about freedom. We're talking about, here are the ways, God says, here are the ways that you free the world. And he gives them a lot of different uh, parameters in which to live. And as you read the New Testament, and the reason why Christians kind of have this view towards the, the, uh, the law is because we have this sense now that we are free from the law, somehow free from all of these rules. And that's true in as much as we are free now by our own inspiration to to follow them for, with our own choosing, with our own heart. And there are certain laws that, that the early Christians said, you know what, these are probably just laws that uh, we don't really need anymore because we've kind of grown up in the faith. But now there's all these others that we, that we, that we still understand the heart of. And the heart of the law is this. God gave, gave his people the law in order to, to do this, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. Don't go back to slavery. Don't do the things that the Egyptians do. Don't do the things that the people around you do. And when you look around to the Egyptians and the people around the Israelites, they were doing things that were just perpetuating slavery. And so when Paul talks about these things in Romans 2 and observing things diligently, he's talking about not perpetuating slavery. 
To, to paraphrase Paul, he says this, uh, when we choose not to perpetuate slavery in the world, we show what the law intended for us to do is now accomplished. It's this, selfless love is now written on our hearts. Okay, so selfless love is now written on our hearts. And so when he says this, he says, observe these diligently because by doing these things, you'll ensure that you're not going to put other people in chains. And then he goes on to talk about the Ten Commandments once again. Uh, this is the second time God, God spoke them to Israel on Mount Horeb, and now Moses is going to remind them. So this is going to be three slides long here because it's, the Ten Commandments are kind of longish. Uh, but I wanted to read them uh, fully because you'll see in here why it's important to, about the points that I'm making. So you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. And we'll talk about in a couple weeks' time how God's selfless love is never blind to the truth. He always speaks the truth and how we, truth needs to help set our love free too. But to go on, but showing steadfast love, this is God's character, he says, if you want to understand me, you're going to understand that I'm steadfastly in love with you to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, going on, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days, and this is all about slavery. See, slavery is still in his mind. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien you have in your town so that your male and female slave may rest as well. Remember, this is where it is, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. This is why they should rest. You were a slave. Don't, don't be a slave to those people around you that want to keep enslaving you. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And finally, neither shall you commit adultery. Oops. You shall not murder Neither shall you commit adultery, neither shall you steal, neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbor, neither shall you covet your neighbor's wife, neither shall you desire your neighbor's house or field or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And as God finishes off, it, or as Moses finishes off this list, we recognize that we're meant to be selfless givers to one another. God is our God first. He's the one that gives us the meaning of our life. And there's all these other things that help us deal with the false desires, these false loves that comes into it. And so we get to these final, this final commandment here. Neither shall you commit adultery, neither shall you steal, neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbor, neither shall you covet your neighbor's wife. And so we're going to explore the inner logic of a few of these last um, commandments in light of slavery and true love, just to show us that the, these two things, adultery and coveting, are forms of slavery that pose as love. 
It's, these are challenging things. And as I go into this today, we're going to explore why are these things not true love? Why are they imposters? Why are they actually things that perpetuate slavery? And as I do this, I'm aware that I'm sort of um, in a community, in a group of people that have had um, all of us, the brokenness in our life. This is, not just, this is not to point out fingers at anyone or anyone uh, or anything. But as we, as we deal with desires and love, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about how these things perpetuate and cause slavery. Because if you ask anyone who's been sort of the recipient of these things or on the, the, the slave, enslaving end of these things, you'll know that these things cause real, real damage and... and um, and, and yet what God is saying, I believe, to all of us is no matter what kind of things have damaged us or no, no matter how many things uh, has, have perhaps damaged others, it's not about who's in or who's out or who's not made a mistake or who's made mistakes or any of this. This is about God saying, I love my people dearly. I love you dearly, whether you have committed adultery or whether someone has committed adultery against you, whether you've coveted and got lost in patterns of coveting other people's wives or husbands. This is about God who says, I love you. I love you dearly, and I want freedom in the world. So this is, this is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, these for, are forms of slavery that pose as love. And hopefully I can illustrate a bit of how we get past some of this. So we start off with, I think this all starts off with attractions. Attractions are things that happen like magnets. I believe that you can't really control attractions. These are the things that happen and they pull things together. And oftentimes when we're attracted to things or attracted to people, it's because in them we feel safe, secure, seen or soothed. These four things, I believe, are what make up attraction. And when we, when we experience them, um, we recognize that if, if in a person, another person, we, we have all these four S's, we're somehow going to realize that the quality of that relationship is going to be good. And the quality, when, when the quality of relationship is good, our life goes well. And so we, we find ourselves all the time attracted. I, I, I was in, the, in our last community, uh, in, in the last church that we were at, there was a little 12-year-old boy who I, I was talking to, and he says, I'm in love with Susie. And I said, who's Susie? He says, she's a girl in my class, and I'm in love with her. And I said, oh, why are you in love with her? He said, well, she's pretty, and she's nice to me. Pretty straightforward, Right? He's not really in love with her. He's attracted to her, right? He's attracted to, to Susie because she makes him feel safe and secure and seen and soothed. And it's no wonder that we want these things. These are wonder, wonderful things. And these are attractions. Now, I'll also say that there are, when we talk about attractions, sometimes um, we're attracted to, some of us are attracted to people who don't make us feel safe or not secure or seen or soothed because Perhaps the people that were supposed to love us the most and supposed to care for us the most didn't do these things for us. And as, as cycles go, sometimes when we're enslaved to people, we sort of start uh, being attracted to the people that enslave us. And if you talk to people that have been kidnapped and have been held hostage for the course of years, oftentimes they're, they're, they, they fall in love with the, their captors. And sometimes because we need to have the stability um, that, that we're unsure of. So I, I'm not going to get into all that today. But when we talk about attractions, 
help us, people helping us feel safe, secure, seen, and soothed. Uh, what marriage does, when we get married, we say, I promise not to go after the things that I'm attracted to anymore or other people that I'm attracted to. If other people make me safe, secure, seen, and soothed, I promise I will not go after them. That's what marriage is promising. But if, if, if you're not married, and if you're in sort of a, a courting relationship, then what romance is, I believe, is romance is the pursuit of your attractions. Romance is, I'm going to pursue you, I'm going to pursue the thing I'm attract, the person I'm attracted to, and I'm going to, I'm going to show them be, that they make me feel safe, seen, secure, and soothed. Uh, and so we bring up this Song of Solomon's verse. I bring it up only to say that some of you are, are in the, the place of your life where you're attracted, but it's not quite time yet for you to pursue a romance. And that's okay. The scriptures tell us that we need to wait. We need to wait until the right time to arouse or awaken love. Others of you are in a position where you are ready to pursue a romance. And, um, and we realize that as, as we're pursuing romances that we're pursuing things, people that we're attracted to. Now here it is. Here's the point of this, the, the, the rest of this here, why I'm talking about attractions and romance. Attractions and romance, if selfish, can lead us to slavery. So, let's talk about this. How does this work? How do attractions in romance, if they're selfish, lead us to slavery? Well, we start with the commandment not to commit adultery. It says, neither shall you commit adultery. And, and Leviticus puts it a little stronger. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's the way that they were to deal with uh, adultery in Moses' era. And um, I'm sort of happy that we don't live in those, th those days and age because I don't want to see anyone stoned to death in front of me. But this is the seriousness with which um, they took it. And but we have to ask the question, why? Why, were they so, why was it so important that adultery wasn't, wasn't committed? Because adultery at its core perpetuates slavery. And how does this work? When, 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 I'm, when someone's promised not to go after another attraction and they commit adultery against me, when they do break that promise, something happens inside of me as a human being. Human beings were not made to be rejected. We were not made to be rejected like that. When people break their promises against us like that, it fractures our core. And we begin to, to, to be unable to find our, our safety and our security in anyone, let alone God. When, when someone commits adultery against me, I, I am enslaved to the thought patterns that start saying, I'm not worthy. I don't have what it takes to, to be able to uh, get the love I need. Uh, essentially, someone has said to me, point blank, you are not good enough. And when that happens, I become deeply enslaved. And then, and, uh, if you think about marriage as a triangle between uh, a Two people and God, what happens is when they get married, they're creating a shelter under which children can flourish. And when that relationship breaks, the, the, the winds and the rains come in on the shelter and wreak havoc on the children of the relationship as well. And the children become enslaved to the thought, I'm not safe and secure in this world. 
the thing that was supposed to keep me the safest and secure is no longer there. And these patterns of uh, slavery come. And this is, I mean, I can go, I could probably go on and on about uh, the, the people that I've met in my life, the people that have sort of confided in me in my previous life, and, um, and just the, the havoc that the breaking of this promise wreaks on the human spirit. And so why, I mean, but what about these attractions, right? So we're in this covenant and these attractions, oftentimes you can't control them. You, you can't get rid of the attractions. Um, perhaps in, in, in the marriage that, that you're in, you're not feeling safe or secure or seen or soothed. And you think to yourself, I'm, not, I'm no longer attracted to this marriage because I'm not, I'm not getting the things I need. And so you start looking elsewhere and thinking, actually, this person makes me feel safe, seen, secure, and soothed. And we have to realize what's happening is we're attracted. We're not, we're not in love. We're attracted. So, so before I get to that, we have to talk about this, the second thing which poses as love, which is um, coveting. Neither shall you covet your neighbor's wife, neither shall you just desire your neighbor's house or field or male or female slave and so forth. We'll focus in on um, coveting. Coveting is letting your attractions consume you. Attractions. I'm trying to set us up. Attractions are natural. Attractions are unavoidable. But when they start consuming you, they become coveting. And this is why this is not just about people, but about stuff. You start going, I'm consumed now with the desire to pursue X, Y, and Z, and perhaps my neighbor's spouse. And God says, when you do that, when you, when you start becoming consumed with getting yourself safe, seen, secure, and soothed, you begin inserting a self, selfish love, a selfish kind of thing. And what happens is it perpetuates slavery. When you covet, when you get lost in the patterns of covetousness, you yourself get enslaved to these patterns. And not only that, but you begin wanting to sort of enslave those around you. And, I, and again, you know, we point to these just evil phenomenon of people getting kidnapped in, in the world. And it's this, it's this thing, this attraction that gone wrong uh, and, and wanting to enslave other people. And so um, covetous, covetousness enslaves us and it enslaves other people. Um, you know, it, I think this is why Jesus, when he talks about this, he's like, look, when we talk about adultery and covetousness, we kind of have to bring them together into one thing. You've heard it said it was that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. And Jesus is saying, I think here, uh, if I could sort of paraphrase him and, and, and bring his teaching into what we're talking about today is this. If you get lost in adultery or covetousness, you're not only enslaving yourself, you're not only enslaving those who you promised to love, but you're enslaving a whole orbit around you. And I'm about freedom. I'm about true freedom, which only comes about by selfless love. And, and, and we, we read through the rest of Deuteronomy, and you get these kind of interesting teachings Talking about this one, um, talking about kings, I'm not going to read this all, but I'll point to where I'll begin here. It says, the king, once you choose a king, it says, 
they must not acquire a number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. See, always over and over again, you shall not return to slavery. And the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. God is setting up parameters. He's saying, look, your heart is a, is a very complex thing. It's a, very, it's a very hard thing to control. And if your kings take too many wives, he's going to go astray. And he'll be led into slavery. And he'll lead, lead my people into slavery. And that's why I believe when King Solomon took hundreds and hundreds of wives, that's, where, that's one of the things that the, the, uh, the writer of, of the first kings says. Uh, that's how he began leading Israel astray. So uh, this other interesting one. If a man has two wives. See, they're back in the day where they had two wives. Um, and uh, sort of G- Jesus helps us to see that this Old Testament polygamy uh, that happened in Israel was just a shadow of the monogamy of the, uh, of the uh, spouse-to-spouse relationship that, um, that is a true reflection of God. And so if a man has two wives and loves the one but not the other, see, he's attracted to one wife but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love. This is setting up this scenario. Okay, so a guy has two wives. He loves one. or Basically, I think the right word is attracted to one, isn't attracted to the other. And now they have two firstborn sons. How do you work this out? Uh, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. God knows that in the scenario in which marriages come up with multiple people involved, that there's going to be selfishness and there's going to be slavery involved. And he's going to helping him, helping, trying to help him work it out. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn, giving him a double share of all he has. That son of the, of the first sign of his father's strength, the right of the firstborn, belongs to him. This is a funny old teaching because it really doesn't apply to us much anymore. But you see the point. You see the principle. If there's going to be true freedom, there's got to be selfless love. Non-preferential, selfless love in relationships. So these are, these are some of the teachings that come forth. So after saying all of that, after setting all of that up for us this morning, one of my main points that I'd like to sort of talk about is attraction is not love. Attraction's fine, okay? Look, we're all attracted to, to different people or different things. Attraction happens when we do feel that safety and when we do feel seen and secure and soothed. Uh, but oftentimes I think what happens is we get in these relationships where we promise not to go after that which we're attracted to. We promise that we will not go after the things that we're attracted to. And we think to ourselves, uh-oh, that I'm beginning to be attracted to somebody else or to something else. And we think if we're going to be authentic with ourselves, we have to pursue that because what we say is, I can't help it, I'm in love. I feel in love with somebody. And the point is, is attraction is not love. We don't feel in love with the person. We feel attracted to them. We can't avoid that, I don't, I don't think. Uh, not, not in this life, at least. And, and what happens is, is we think to ourselves, I have, to, I have to, to tank all of that which I've built up in, in my secure relationship 
in order to pursue this other attraction because I have to be true to myself. Well, the point is, is you don't have to because you're not in love with this other person. You are attracted to them. Attraction is not love. And what love is, is selfless. I've committed not to go after anyone else that I'm attracted to. And when I don't feel safe or secure or seen or soothed in my commitment, if I want to love my spouse, I say, even if I don't get those things from you, I will stay faithful to you. I will give those things in return. Even when I don't feel soothed by you, I will soothe you. Even when I don't feel safe around you, I will make you feel safe around me. Even when I don't feel secure around me, I will help you feel secure. Even when I don't feel seen by you, I will see you. That's what love is. See, when we're talking about love and selfless love and how this all works, we have to hold up these imposters, these imposters of, of adultery or covetousness, which say, I have to go pursue these things because I can't control it. The point is, is God is working in us and shaping us into people who can truly love like he loves. And God doesn't go after attractions. God loves us. And so this is, this is the challenge for us today. Uh, how can I learn to love those around me when these imposters rear their heads? You know, and that's sort of what I've been talking through here. Attraction and romance. These are good things. These are wonderful things, but they have to be combined with selfless love. And when they do, I, I believe, we start um, showing the world around us, we're showing the people around us what the love of God is truly like. Because God is the one who says, even when I don't feel your love in return, I'm going to give it to you. Even when you commit adultery on me, I will be faithful to you. Even when you go after all the pleasures and desires of your heart and begin worshiping other things, I love you. And God's saying, I love you. I will be committed to you. And, and as we grow in this, we show the world what, what true selfless love looks like. So uh, there's so much more I wanted to say on this today, but I'm just going to leave it at this because we're in a series, right? We're, we're, we're moving towards the descriptions of of how we get shaped into selfless love. Because if I leave, I leave you with this today, uh, this is not the final message. This is not the final point. This is just the beginning of our exploring what this selfless love looks like. And next week, we're going to jump in a little more deeply into what selfless love looks like uh, from God's perspective and how he goes about forming that in us. The good news is he's always doing it. Every scenario, every situation, every time he calls us to be faithful to those who we've promised ourselves to be faithful to, every time we do that, he grows our love just a little more pure in our hearts. And he's, he's looking at every one of us and saying, I want to shape in you the type of love that I give. And so the good news is he's always doing it. The universe, its principles are built on selfless love. And he's saying, everything I do in your life is to help form you in my image in that way. Uh, the hard news is, is oftentimes we don't have much control in our ability to shape ourselves into self selfless love. We find ourselves time and time again in selfishness. Time and time again um, in, in lost in these, in these uh, imposters. Uh, and so we have to learn 
I, I believe in this process, and we'll talk about this in two weeks' time. Uh, but we have to learn to follow him as he's shaping us because we can't do it ourselves. We, we can't, we don't have, we're not strong enough or smart enough or any of that to, to be able to know how to change ourselves. But God does, and that's the good news, and he's always at it. And we'll talk more about how that works in the coming weeks. But for now, I would invite us to think, uh, to turn our attention to this table, because this table is set. The scene is set on this table with selfless love. A love that says, even when you reject me, I will give my life for you. That's the Lord we serve, the faithful one who we call, who we call Jesus of Nazareth, who, who is our Lord. And every time that we bring to him our imperfect love and our, our wishes to become more perfect in love, I believe he honors that tremendously. And so we come and we, we look at a broken bread here. And when we look at the broken bread, we see Jesus, who, whose body was broken in, in faithful love for us. And we, we dip it into the juice because the juice symbolizes the blood that he shed for us. So we see a table set before us, and it's selfless love, and he's asking us forward every week, come forth to my table and take inside of yourselves my selfless love, and I'll form it in return inside of you. So the table is set for each and every one of us here. The table is open. All are invited.